We're joined by Jesse from the Grand County Library and Sherry from Back of Beyond Books. Good evening. Greetings. Good evening, everybody. What a joy it is to have all of us live in the studio of KZMU Radio Book Club. It's kind of a free format, although we do have uh, a loose mission of talking about literature, books. We often talk about the bestsellers throughout the country, and we usually kick off the evening with talking about events at both the bookstore and the Grand County Public Library. So, Jesse, if you'd like to kick us off with uh, what's happening at the local library. Sure. So the library is, as you may know, open regular hours these days, which has been um, great. We're getting busier and busier. We don't have much um, in the way of programming coming up in the near future, taking a little slowdown with the programs. Um, but I would like to point out a couple of things. The Friends of the Library is a nonprofit organization that works to support the library um, by uh, making book sales in the lobby of the library um, and a lot of other ways to support programming, to support uh, reading programs and just and trainings. And they're really hardworking, wonderful folks. They're looking for new members. So if you're looking for a new way to connect with your community, if you like handling books, uh, give the library a call and we'll put you in touch with the Friends of the Library. And they do amazing work providing funds for the library, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. funds that are not budgeted in part exactly. through their book sales, which is are found in the lobby of the library. And, and I found some really good treasures in those book sales, maybe books I donated. <laughs> <Is that laughs> awesome. I want to buy those back. <laughs> yeah, so they're looking for new members and you can call the library at uh, two, 259-1111 if you're interested in uh, joining the Friends of the Library and supporting the library. Um, a quick note, we're going to be closed for Veterans Day on a Thursday, November 11th. Um, I'm sorry, that's a... I'm not sure what day of the week that is now. I have Wednesday written down. The 11th is, uh, is Veterans Day and the library will be closed. Um, Thursday, I think that is. We're also going to be opening late on November 17th. Uh, we're going to open at 1 p.m. We'll be having a staff training in the morning before that. So um, for the Thanksgiving holiday, the library is going to close the 24th through 28th. And that is the news from the library this time. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. <laughs> Sherry, what do we have forthcoming at Back of Beyond Books? Yes, you know, it's interesting. We have no events for a very long time, and then within one week, we actually have two events, <laughs> both virtual via the Zoom format. Before I talk about those, we are actually truncating our hours as well. We'll be going down to, uh, on starting on the 7th of November, we'll be open until 6th, and then t at the end of December, December 26th, we'll be uh, we'll close at 5. So open till 6, and then we'll even go further and close at 5. So just to give you an idea um, of what we're, when we're going to be open. This week, uh, not only are we, do we have this kind of wonderful lineup of, of two events, but we actually have one of our events um, uh, let's see, let's say the, uh, the person we're doing this event for mm -hmm. is sitting with us. Hi, Brooke. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks we, for having me. Yeah, we, we, we're going to be talking a lot more to Brooke, but just in this moment, we're just going to say that uh, we've got Brooke um, and us celebrating his new book, Mary Jane Wild, 
two walks and a rant. This event will be via Zoom on Wednesday at 6.30. And uh, you can find the link for that on our website, backofbeyondbooks.com, also on our Facebook as well. So we have Brooke, and we're going to be talking to Brooke some more, so hang tight for that in just a minute. And then the other event we have going on uh, this week is uh, a a conversation between Amy Irvine and Nadia Awusu. And both of them are memoirists, and they're going to be talking, among other things, um, you know, they're they're both what they call eco-justice activists, memoirists with deep attachment to place, um, and they'll be talking about their friendship forged through what they write about, the act of writing, through teaching nonfiction together in the Mountain View MFA Low Residency Creative Writing Program at Southern New Hampshire University. University. We'll also be discussing um, on Friday the urgent issues of women's bodies in relationship to indigenous and public lands through the lens, the lenses of Gabby Petito's story and the murders of Kylan Schulte and Crystal Turner and the crisis of missing and murdered Native American women and girls, including Faith Lindsay, Olivia Lone Bear, Ella Mae Begay, and too many others. So we're, among other things, we're going to be having that conversation with them Friday, November 5th, at 6.30, again, via the Zoom format. Um, Anyone can join from their living room and uh, find the link for that on our website, backofbeyondbooks.com, or our Facebook site as well. Thank you, Sherry. Mm -hmm. Brooke Williams, welcome to KZMU. Thank you. Um, I love being here. I love being in a place surrounded by people who love books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate you making the long trek in from the valley to to join us tonight. Maybe for starters, I know Sherry has some pressing questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've been we've been talking about this for a long time, but for starters, should I be worried? Yes, you should. <laughs> and I know I know that Jesse has some questions too, Brooke. So get ready. Oh boy. we've got some things for you. <laughs> uh, why don't you just introduce the book? This is. A project that's been years in the making, and yet, in you and I chatting, it wasn't a book project per se. It was a way for you to to heal and ruminate about the politics and wild places. So, how how did a book come out of all of this? That's a good question. You're exactly right. <clears throat> so, like many people. The night of the election when uh, Trump became our president was a surprise to me. And um, I was like so knocked off guard by it that um, I I spent the next day trying to figure out what I was going to do about that. And then the day after that, I just put on my pack and I walked off our porch in Castle Valley across this big field across the loop road and up into this canyon and down into the Mary Jane wilderness. And I came back three days later. Um, In the meantime, I was supposed to figure out what to do about it and write stuff down in my journal, but I realized that I had um, dropped my pens (laughs) when I leaned over to tie my boot the first time. (laughs) So I had nothing to write with, all three of them. (laughs) All three of them. So I had nothing to write with. So I had to remember it later. So that I got back and I just started to type. And I found out something really interesting about myself, which is as a writer, I'm always trying to write stuff down. 
I always have a notebook and a pen, and when I see something, I write it down. But what I realize is how much I'm missing while I'm writing it down. And um, out there, I couldn't write it down, so I just had to pay attention. And what I did when I got back was, I tried to, first I tried to remember what I had thought, all these brilliant thoughts that I had had, <laughs> and all these different ideas. And that didn't work, so I just replayed like the film of where I went in my head. And I just wrote that down. Hmm. And in the end, I had 15,000 words. And I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it. And I, my sister is a book artist in Salt Lake at the University of Utah. So she helped me turn it into a little book pamphlet. And I did that and gave it to um, Terry for Christmas. I um, used the map that I had taken as a cover. And I made this little kind of art, one-of-a-kind books. So a, few, a little bit later, I was working on something else, and there was a lot of ranting in the thing I was writing. <laughs> and Terry said, who read it, said, there's a lot of ranting in that. I'm not sure it fits. Why don't you put the ranting in that little book that you gave me? <laughs> because it already had some ranting in it. <laughs> so I ranted more and, and put it in there, and it got a little fatter, the ranting was about as long as the rest of it. So then um, I ran into this publisher, Homebound Publications, a, a woman named Leslie Browning. And I can't remember how we got connected, but um, we were living part-time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she, Leslie was uh, at Harvard, so I had coffee with her one day. <clears throat> and um, she said, why don't you enter your book into our contest. It's called the Prism Prize. And the Prism Prize is for climate literature, not that I thought my book was exactly about climate literature, but I entered it, and I'm not sure how many other people entered it, but four of us got a prize, and maybe there were only four entries. I'm not even <laughs> sure. But there was a winner and three runner-ups, and we all got a publishing contract. And that's when the hard work began, <clears throat> because I thought I would go back through my journals, which I had been keeping for four years, and there was so much there that it took me longer to sift out what I wanted than it did to have written it in the beginning. And then I went back on the same walk after the 2020 election, and now it's a book. And I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, now the work begins, you got to sell it. No, that's up to you. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brooke, I have, uh, it's interesting, congratulations, first of all. Thank you. And um, I feel like reading this book, I went from a lot of macrocosm to microcosm. Um, this was a book, in my mind, about wrestling, wrestling with those demons, you know, kind of you with those demons, sort of your thought processes, wrestling with privilege wrestling with um you know kind of your place in space to a certain extent in that kind of like philosophical way of wrestling you know kind of like what what can i what can i think about my place here and of course it's about wilderness but this is a bit of an ad there's two things i really want to talk about one is coyote and i want to talk about how you toggle between the mythopoetic you know this kind of mythology and science and natural history okay that's one thing 
And then the other thing I, I did want to say was how incredibly interesting it was. Okay, so this is two walks in a rant. So essentially the book's divided within these two, you could say almost like long-form essays in a way. And they're four years apart, I guess. And so what I found fascinating was what we couldn't predict between these two was the pandemic. And so the way that you were writing with the first essay, or the first part of the book, and then the way that you were writing with the second one felt almost like one was very external, kind of you know working with what's outside of you. And then it was incredible to me to see the second part so internal. And it f almost felt like a way to see in some ways what the pandemic might have created um, from the first one to the yeah. second one. Wow, that's very astute. That's, that's what I love about writing where I had like these images and these experiences and these ideas and it only becomes, those only become like fodder for the person who reads it to, mm -hmm. to imagine kind of what it means to them. And that's fascinating. The, you're exactly right. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before. But the pandemic for me was, and I think I wrote about it a little bit, well, we were forced to stay home. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we had no real um, interactions other than Zoom, which I'd never heard of before the pandemic. And uh, I had this big, giant, wide open space to kind of explore. And, uh, and a little bit of it was, I didn't feel any sort of obligation to meet anybody's needs or anybody's expectations. And I sort of became childlike in a way. And I, I, this whole thing became sort of a mythical landscape. And um, in fact, I, uh, the publisher wanted a map. And I didn't want to draw an accurate map because I don't want to draw too much attention to this place, assuming people will read it. And, but I, I actually found a, a little uh, app about how to draw a mythical map. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I copied them. And, yeah. and I, so I drew a map that was you know, mythical. And I realized, too, that the first time it was you know, more accurate, but, but this kind of, I'm going to incorporate what you said about coyote mm -hmm. yes. because it kind of meshes because I had, um, going back many, many years, um, I, I spent a lot of time with Adele Alsop, may she rest in peace, she just passed recently, and she was a great teacher to me in terms of her shamanic um, teaching and her shamanic look at the world that she really kind of took the, like, the, like the wall down between these worlds. And it's like going into a house and ha that you've been in going into forever. And then all of a sudden you realize there's a wall there that's not the end of the house, it's into another room that you didn't know was there. And that's kind of how it was. And um, one thing led to another. Um, we spent a lot of time back east and it turns out that um, I was living down the street from a shamanic teacher and we did these journeys together, and one of them, during one of them, she said, well, coyote is your animal helper. And so my animal helper took me on these journeys that were really places I knew in the physical world, too. And the meshing of those two worlds was, in some places, and some, sometimes was just, like, overwhelming, um, the way it, things came together, so... There's yeah. all that. And plus, I just feel like we need to open that wall down, uh, take that wall down 
we don't we don't know what else to do right now. So well, and for listeners, we're you know we're into your walk within a couple pages. We're in Coyote's Den, you know, and and you're kind of a little struck. Like, am I in Coyote's Den or am I not in Coyote's Den? Am I in Coyote's Den in the myth world, in the dream world? Where am I? What's going on with the coyote poop? You know, yeah. <laughs> like what's going on with all this? And I was talking with uh, Jesse. We were both mentioning that. That coming out of this this mythology, this coyote mythology, then became this idea of the spore, which I thought would be kind of interesting, maybe to bring up a little bit, and how that really was a through thread, yeah. you know, um, this this kind of um, created kind of this idea yeah. called the spore. Hopefully we're not, you know, hopefully we're not going to get too <laughs> Spoiler too <big>. alert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Spo- spo- spoiler. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Well, you know what I could say that's not yeah. in the book? Yeah. Is w- one thing I just realized, I don't think I talked about where that idea originally came from. And it goes way back to um, Salt Lake City. Terry was working at the Museum of Natural History. And we had a film festival. And I was helping her with that. And one of the festival... Um, entrance was I forget his name but he came from England and he had made a movie called Korup and Korup is the name of a rainforest in Africa and um, that one of the scenes in that movie was of this ant you do bring that up did they say Korup yeah that entire thing that in fact that image was so uh, so kind of (laughs) profound and even reading about go ahead and explain and apparently there's a number of different uh, parasitic uh, mushrooms that attack the brains of different insects and that it's part of their um, reproductive cycle. But it just turned, you know, I don't know when it actually became a metaphor for me, but only when I started to realize that I was surrounded by people, public people, that I could not in any shape or form explain why they were acting the way they were. And so I thought it must have been, they must have been had a spore growing in their brain. <laughs> the only way to explain. <laughs> That's the only way to explain it. So I thought, you know, and I love nature metaphors, so I'm going to make them up a lot. Would it be okay it. if we read uh, sure. our listeners a little bit of that um, that passage that you guys are <laughs> referring to so they know what in the world we're talking about? <laughs> um So, uh, Coyote's Cave is a small, dark opening at the base of a house-sized boulder. That that small cave triggered a long stream of memories. Before I followed Coyote there, I'd walked past it a dozen times, never paying much attention. This time, I remembered the break in my conscious mind the first time that I visited it. No one had been in the cave for a while. Coyote grabbed a broom and immediately began sweeping. Oil wall-mounted lamps lit up the room. A large wooden table was off to the left, covered with dirt and mouse droppings. Coyote brushed off the table, tilted it back, and laid it down on its side. Beneath it were three large ammo cans, which he brushed off. One was green, one blue, and one yellow. And then Coyote told me of the spore. Humans breathe in the spore, which addles their brains, causing changes in their behavior. The story was similar to one I'd heard years ago about a mushroom growing in Africa, the Korup rainforest. Mm-hmm. A particular ant, and this is this is true. I mean, this is this is this is actually right. documented <laughs> science. This part, um, a particular ant is involved in the reproduction of this mushroom. These ants typically spend their lives foraging amid the leaves and grubs on the forest floor. The unlucky ones breathe in the spores of the mushroom, which float in the air. Once the spore <coughs> begins developing inside the ant's brain, the ant does something it's never done before. 
It climbs a stalk of tall grass. Reaching the top, it embeds its pincher, securing itself to the grass stalk. Hanging there, it dies. <laughs> but the spore continues to grow and develop, and soon a small mushroom bursts from the dead ant's head. The mushroom bursts open, spreading a billion more spores into the air for other ants to breathe in. Um, once inhaled, the spore in coyote's story also addles the brains, causing unusual and nonsensical behavior. Those who inhale the spore climb toward the highest point and begin making decisions based solely on their own wealth and power, often with no regard for what is good, right, and necessary for life on Earth. When you witness people in power behaving in ways unbecoming to life itself, you're seeing the spore at work, Coyote told me. <laughs> That's in my book. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> page, uh, page four oh. or five, Rick. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. It's a perfect, perfect <laughs> analogy. Well, think about it. You can apply it a yeah. lot lately, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It oh, makes, yeah. It makes sense on all the levels. Yeah. I love Sherry's opening line of, of metaphor versus physical, because as I read Brooks' work, and this isn't the first, you know, I've read all of your work, I would sometimes glass over the metaphysical just so I could get back to the physical, because that's who I am and what I relate to. This is the first work, Brooke, that I've delved into the metaphysical, and I think began to understand it. Wow. <laughs> and I was very proud of myself, but <laughs> I was more proud of you because <laughs> you allowed me into that world for the first time. And it's a world that's alien to me. Yeah. And maybe you could touch on, on how a writer takes those two sides of the fence. Yeah. It, maybe it's rephrasing what Sherry asked, but it's I think it's question. the crux of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <sighs> I think you just, I, I wrote a thing in my last book where um, <clears throat> I, w I think it was in the acknowledgments or something where I said, this, oh, I know what it was, is that my editor wanted to know whether that book was going to be on the fiction or the nonfiction show, <laughs> because there was a lot of this. Hmm, interesting. And I said, no, it's all, it's all real. Yeah. And she said, good. And, and, and she said, all right, you just need to let people know that you thought this or you s may have seen it. And then and the way I dealt with it in the acknowledgments, I said, I can't guarantee that all this stuff really happened, but I can't guarantee that it didn't. If you just kind of dream it up, it could have happened. So I think you kind of deal with it like that, as long as you're honest about it. There are those that actually really can, uh, th their, their imagination or their connection to dream time or however you want to explain it that is uh, something they pursue it's interesting to kind of think about there's so many questions in this book and i love that hmm. there's so many questions there doesn't have to be a million answers but we get a lot of questions and we get to go down your rabbit holes, you know, many. And I want the listeners to know this isn't just, you know, just about coyote. Or this is, there's a lot of questions in this book. A lot of questions about male privilege, about white privilege, about being in the shadow, about being in the light, you know, um, about politics, about race. So many amazing questions. And in some ways, I could almost hear your thoughts. You know, it was, it was like being in your brain. We, we were in Brooke's brain, you know, for a while there, which is kind of great, actually. Kind of interesting. 
<laughs> but I was also thinking about the, the, the traditions that get coming, coming through for you from the hermit to the seeker to the wanderer, you know, and what you came to um, about kind of the definition of these terms and also like wildness and wilderness in there. It seems like to me, you finally found the, this, you kind of alighted on, I'm a seeker. You know, but then there's a little bit of the hermit in there. And can you c- talk about some of those terms a little bit? And Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, the hermit has been a, kind of a character I've been trying to figure out for maybe 10 years. Jack Turner, um, he's a real mentor of mine. He wrote the book Abstract Wild. Um, he's probably 80 now. He's a real adventurer in both the inner and outer realms, more in the uh, outer realms. But one day he showed up with a stack of books and he laid them down on my table and he said, America's biggest problem is we have no tradition of hermits. You know, and I've been around Moab long enough to know that there are people living around here that I would call hermits that, (laughs) you know, have chosen to live out in the wilderness as opposed to in the city. And he said, I explained that to him. He said, no, not that kind of hermit, but the hermit that are the, the hermits that are sought out for their wisdom. So I read the books, and the, the one that really stuck with me is a book called um, The Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. And in that book, Red Pine, or his, his, his real name is, um, I don't know which is his real name. Bill Porter <laughs> is the name that's in the phone book. Um, he wrote that book, and it's very straightforward in terms of play-by-play, play, um, just what these people knew and what they said. Not too much of the philosophy, but I, as I thought about it more, I realized that if a, if a hermit, a traditional hermit, is wants to live out into the wilderness, and for some reason he or she is sought out for his or her wisdom, then there must be something out there <laughs> that made that happen. And if it's a long, long, long tradition of this in other countries, I mean, going clear back to the Desert Fathers who planted the seeds for all modern religions in the deserts of Africa, I mean, there's something out there. And here we are in America, and uh, uh, most of us, maybe many of your listeners are, you know, real advocates for protecting wild places. And we do that for many reasons, for um, the biodiversity and for the solitude and for the recreation and for many reasons. But we haven't really been able to put our finger on what is really going on, what kind of knowledge and wisdom and what kind of perception is there that we're missing that, that is so traditional and based on where we are on the in this on the state of the planet right now maybe there's something there we could use so there's that um and it was going to be a book on all of its own but it never made it so i I thought it just would fit in a little bit into this because definitely even though i never put these words to it that's why i went i needed something that I wasn't getting in my house or in town. I needed mm-hmm. something. Hmm. And I, I wasn't even sure how to ask the question. But, yeah. yeah. We're speaking with Brooke Williams, his brand new book, Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks and a Rant on KZMU Radio Book Club, Hardback Radio. Thanks, Brooke, for uh, joining us. Jesse, have a, a thought? Just in addition to that thought, because um, later, a little bit later in your second, um, the second part of your book, you talk about um, the act of walking itself producing clear thinking and and deeper thinking. Um, uh, walking a foot as conduit. Uh, you referred to that previous essay, 
And um, the Chinese term, Yuan Chani, I think I'm probably saying that wrong, but the, the, the life force that comes up from the earth through the ball Isn't of your, literally yeah. up into the ball of your foot, physically. And there's a place in your foot. Yeah, 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 that's a, <laughs> that's a whole, that's a, there's a whole interesting and, and conversation Look at, look at there, how many people, have, writers and people have said that's where they got to go walk. Yeah, which author was it? I think you referenced one writer or thinker who said the only thoughts we're thinking are the ones w- f- produced when walking, basically. Yeah. I yeah. said that mm. mangled that, but. Um, well, I, Thoreau I, said, the hum- man is, he said man, but humans are the only animal that ruminates while walking. Huh. <laughs> but yeah. I do it in the shower, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> we digress. <laughs> 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 I do my most creative thinking when I'm out on a yeah. walk by myself yeah. with no no input, no just yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially if yeah, if you don't have the input. If mm-hmm. you're not you just know, listening to something or mu- even music sometimes. You're mm-hmm. just letting it. And then that reminds me of s- some of the times that you talked about the hum, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or w- what was a- what the what was actually the human resonance. Yeah, you could actually hear. Yeah. If you just, if you listen long enough out there, and it's quiet enough, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of the walk also, the reference to many authors, I could list, you know, a dozen who have written just on on their, their strolls, their walks. But it also brings this idea of privilege that, the majority of the people in this country cannot go out their back door and experience wildness in the way that we can. And also, yeah. Andy, they can't go out alone. And I think that that's a that's big a, piece too. It's yeah. a big privilege yeah. to be able to walk mm-hmm. out there alone. As and well. yet, how do you? Yeah. I really got frustrated in, in in trying to. How do I internalize that privilege? And. I grew up as an educator through the park service, and that's all we were trying to do was was get people out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm stumped as to how to affect that change in the populace because we all, I think, fervently believe that if we could take everyone out to these places, they would see it, they would feel it. On the flip side, if we take everyone out to these places, that those places are no longer. Right. Yeah. How do you how do you juggle that? Yeah, well, I think it was Socrates who said, "There is no solution, Andy. Seek it lovingly." <laughs> 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 but I think it's true. Yeah. We've got too many people, and we got too many options, and we have. I mean, just what I read a thing today about how much the income of the richest billionaires has increased in the last uh, fifteen years. And yet, the minimum wage has stayed the same. And fifteen months. And fifteen yeah, it's months exponentially yeah. grown yeah. even yeah. further. Well, and I think it's a sp- it's a plot that we have to have so many people supporting us, and we have to do whatever we can to make sure they don't break out and they don't start to do this and they don't start to have these kinds of feelings. And I mean, t- Terry taught um, writing to some uh, elementary school students when we first moved here. And there was like a, a dozen of them and 10 of them had never been to Arches before mm-hmm. because it takes a ride in a car. It takes a parent who has the time. It takes this and it takes that. And it's like, it's, it's like set up to keep us in this little box. 
and they're doing everything they can to make sure that nobody breaks out that doesn't have to. But there's just, I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. And this whole conversation will segue into Friday's conversation on, on wild places and women, yeah. women of color. Women's bodies. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, I think it was, I, I think even it was a, a little vulnerable, I would say. Uh, I, was, I was actually impressed with your wanting to ask the question of your privilege. I think sometimes that can be tough because we have our own blind spots in that. You know, it's mm -hmm. like I'm asking the question. Mm -hmm. and well, I, you know, it's huge. And yeah. The thing is, I did not earn my privilege. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I would have worked so hard for it and I would have it, right. then I would be er embarrassed or nervous or threatened by having to be having a challenge. Mm -hmm. But I was, you know, I was born uh, into a middle class white family that passed down, you know, generation to generation. Like my dad gave me the down payment for our first house and that house grew in value. And, and then when you read about what people of color go through in, in their neighborhoods, that can never happen, you know? So you start to see all that. And I, so I can't help what happened to me, but I can do something. I can like do some kind of reparations. We have a student that we taught at Dartmouth, who's now at Harvard, who's from a very wealthy family in England. And she started an organization about getting wealthy kids to give their money away, you know? And this, this kid was involved in the divestment unit uh, movement at um, Dartmouth for years. And finally, what, a, a week ago or a month ago, Dartmouth finally divested from fossil fuel investments, you know? Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean, we can't help it. And we can give away as much as we can and do as much as we can with it. But we also have to sort of acknowledge that we didn't earn it. Yeah. I think that's a piece of it. Mm. Yeah. We're talking to Brooks Williams. Brooke Williams, <laughs> excuse me. Mary Jane Wilde is his latest book, Two Walks and a Rant. Back of Beyond Books will be hosting Brooke. Wednesday night on a Zoom event starting at 6.30. We'll delve into some of these issues, but we're going to talk uh, a, lot of, a lot of other things within the book as well. Um, you can pick up the Zoom link on the Back of Beyond Books website or on their Facebook page. Brooke, would you mind sticking around? And we're going to shift gears a little bit <laughs> and maybe throw a little curveball at you. Okay. <laughs> I hit a curve. <laughs> this is the Radio Book Club, and Sherry started this tradition some months ago of kind of putting uh, us all on a spot. <laughs> and each month we talk about what we're reading, and I want to take that idea and ask what poetry are we reading, first and foremost, mm. and secondly is why. Hmm. Okay, are you asking me? Yeah, why don't you start, Brooke? You want me to start? Yeah, why don't you start? <gasps> well, I thought you were going to stop with books because I I don't think I've read books cover to cover like I have just this last little while. And I've, I've, I'm on my third one. I'm going to finish it tonight. But poetry, that's so interesting you brought that up because this friend of mine, she was actually the editor of my book, um, Open Midnight. Her name is Barbara Rass. And she was at Trinity University Press, but before that, she's a poet, and she's a published poet, an award-winning poet. And um, she sent 
um, her latest book maybe two months ago, three months ago, and I'd read through it then. But she wrote me a note that she's moved to Denver to, to be with her daughter and her granddaughter, and um, she needs to write more. And you know what she was responding to is that the idea of the demons that we kind of wake up with in the morning. And she told me her, her, who her demons were, and one of them is one that keeps reminding her she's not writing enough. And um, so that was the reason that she responded to me. But she's written these beautiful poems, and I'm really working on um, right now um, a book about dragonflies, and there's a book, there's a poem about dragonflies in there. And it reminded me of a Mary Oliver poem about dragonflies, and, and the stanza is something like, the dragonfly lives its life without one error, which I just love that idea. Mm. And then there's also a, uh, not a Rumi, an uh, Isa haiku that says, oh, red dragonfly, are you here to lead us to enlightenment? <laughs> so those are my latest poetry, uh, my latest um, immersions into poetry. Mm. You know, I had to, I'm so glad I have my little computer here because I'm trying to actually find, we have a staff member named Heidi, and she introduced me to a poet named Rebecca Elson, and she has a book of poems called A Responsibility to Awe, which I think would really be mm. Uh, that I word, love that word. I know. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. Brooke, this, this word awe comes up very regularly, by the way, in Mary Jane Wilde in Brooke's book. Um, but there's this, uh, there was a poem that I might have to pass it off to Jesse for just a minute. It's the first stanza of one of her poems I'm just trying to find right now. So let me have just another second. And Jesse, are you ready? Sure. Talk about this. Sure. I haven't been reading a ton of poetry recently, um, but I think that the two poets that I've recently revisited, as I do every few years, um, is uh, Billy Collins, and I just find his gentle humor and his slightly skewed observations to be comforting. Um, you can usually count on his poems to have a tiny punchline at the end, which borderline gimmicky in some of his later books but i really love um sailing alone around the room is one of my mm -hmm. favorite collections that and nine horses just there's just not a, a misstep in either of those books um i find them just a heart heartrendingly lovely and and um gently gently humorous and um those always make me feel better and the other poet that i recently um dipped in and out of is uh, Mary Oliver just just for just the the feeling of um, expansiveness that she gives me in her poetry um, and just the reminder to stay awake and look around um, it kind of takes the takes the lid off of my head in a in a way and opens up my opens up my mind a little bit so my poetic journey began in, as a freshman in college when I took a English composition class and they had a semester on poetry. And that did more to depress my love of words and poetry mm -hmm. than anything has ever done. The guy was so boring and dry and you know, a poem has to be iambic <laughs> pentameter and you cannot, you cannot go out of the boundaries 
of that. And so I don't, I didn't read a lot of poetry for a long time. Uh, but Mary Oliver has been spoken of several times already. But what led to this question was I picked up a David Lee book today. The reason I picked up David Lee is I've begun to study Copper Canyon Press's early works. And I was surprised to find David as one of their early authors because David is the jokester of poetry. If you've never seen David Lee, he used to be the, the poet laureate for the state of Utah. He is the funniest poet, and it's almost akin to cowboy poetry, but he does it from a rural farming perspective. One of his books is Porcine Chronicles, all about pigs. And I don't dare read it because he has the drawl that is required <laughs> to understand David's amazing poetry. But Wendell Berry is, is probably my favorite poet. He's my favorite human, I think. And he's a rural writer, a farmer. And between David Lee and Wendell Berry, I get it. Mm. And it, there are times where you just need to get it. Yeah. Can I add one more thing? Mm -hmm. And I found the stanza, by, by the way, so I can add one more thing as well. You, you reminded me of, I love those people, but I heard um, a Zoom, like, gathering of people celebrating Jim Harrison's gigantic, uh, he mm -hmm. just, he died recently, not uh, recently, but oh. his new book is like 800 pages. And so. Terry's essay on yeah, her memory of Jim. Of yeah. Oh my gosh, I digress. Yeah. Back to you, bro. So anyway, I was, I'd heard about it and I, I, I just tuned in like a thousand other people did to this conversation between Harrison's daughter and um, two uh, young poets that to whom he was, you know, a mentor and hero. And it was brilliant. Yeah. Oh, and Colin McCann, who's the, I think he won, I think he won a National Book Award for the, a book about walking on a tightrope between two buildings. What would that be called? Colin McCann a few years ago. You know what I'm talking about? Let the Great World. I can world picture the, oh, great, the Let cover. the Great World Spin. Let the yes. Great World Spin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Colin, I didn't realize, I know Colin, and I didn't realize that he was such a, um, a, a fan of, of Harrison's, and he did this reading a long poem of Harrison's that was so moving. Anyway. No, no, no. You're, you're good. Keep yeah. going. Uh, just as uh, circling back around. So this is from uh, this is from Rebecca Elson's book, po book of poetry named A Responsibility to Awe. And the one of the poems is called Antidotes to Fear. And it's all I have is the first stanza that kind of really blew me away. It's, it's this. Sometimes, as an antidote to fear of death, I eat the stars. Isn't that nice? I love that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that, like, they, I eat the stars? It's like four words. I know. We've all used 10,000 times, but never in that order. I know. <laughs> That's what, it's like that mythopoetic, you know, it's real, but it's yeah. not real. Right, Andy? It's <laughs> He's like, dude, no. <laughs> no. You don't, you don't eat the stars. <laughs> if you're a poet, you can. <laughs> you know, we struggle with, with social media. And a couple of years ago, Julia, uh, who just finished her Artist in the Parks residency, posted a, a short poem. And it got like 12,000 hits and <laughs> likes and was shared a billion times. Yeah. And the rest of us 
blood, sweat, and tears about what to post, and we get 12 likes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is something about yeah. the yeah. right words mm-hmm. at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're always, as writers, attempting to get as make the word as close to the thing mm-hmm. as possible. Yeah. But poets, they do so much better job at it. <laughs> The parameters are different, it, yeah. you know, with when you're working with metaphor, yeah. yeah. But wielding metaphor is not easy either, so. Right. No, it can get really corny really quickly. Yes, it can. Yeah. Do you have any examples? <laughs> <laughs> There's probably quite a few uh, out there. <laughs> well, who's the, 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 the cow, uh, what's her name, uh, Rupi Cower? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's a pop poet. Yeah. And it. It does the same work that Rumi does to different people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who are we to say? And we yeah. really have to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah where, it, where it hits you in your psyche. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, I've been so excited about a couple of different events I went to where it's spoken word poetry, where yeah. the poet is actually oh, it's performing. performance art. It's like, oh yeah. my gosh. Oh, man. Stunning. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's segue into what we're all reading. We have time, I think, for each one of us to review a book that we, we should have Brooke do one are too. reading. Oh, Brooke has to do one. We didn't tell him. In but fact, if you didn't ask me, I was going to do one. <laughs> <laughs> I can always cut your mic off, sir. <laughs> so who wants to start on what we've been reading? Oh, goodness. Um, let's see. What to choose? What to choose? Um, I am going to talk about a little bit about a book I'm not even finished with yet, but I am cooking right along, almost done. This is a book called The Other Black Girl by uh, Zakiya Delilah Harris. Um, I picked it up because it got a starred review in Kirkus. I've heard that it is timely of the moment. Um, it sort of uh, will explain some of the pressures of being a black woman in a white dominated field publishing um, in uh, Manhattan is the setting here. And um, I, I've found it to be illuminating, and, um, but also an interesting, it's got a little bit of a mystery or a thriller element, which I totally wasn't expecting. Um, the other black girl, the description on the jacket um, says, uh, success versus authenticity um, is, is uh, is kind of is kind of the theme like what do you have to give up to be successful and what do you have to sacrifice to be your authentic self so um two young black women meet against the starkly white backdrop of new york city book publishing 26 year old editorial assistant nella is tired of being the only black employee at wagner books um fed up with isolation and microaggressions she's thrilled when harlem born and bred hazel starts to work in the cubicle beside her they've only just started to compare um their daily lives though when a string of uncomfortable events it elevates hazel to office darling and Danella is left in the dust she's um being sabotaged actually and then some creepy notes begin to appear on nella's desk i'm making this sound so cheesy it's actually not um it's actually uh examining the uh, the presumption that you should have automatic camaraderie with someone who's the same color or the same gender even um or the same you know comes from the same any kind of background and and how presumptuous that is and that um um there are there are much deeper 
things to look for in um, one another. And um, it's been called a whip smart and dynamic thriller, a sly social commentary. It's perfect for anyone who's ever felt manipulated, threatened, or overlooked in the workplace. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying the book. It's a quick read and, um, it's, or it's moving quickly. I should say it's very well paced. And, um, I kind of enjoy peeking into the world of Manhattan publishing, nothing. (laughs) And, um, and the culture there, um, several kinds of culture there that I know very little about. So I, I recommend it if you want. Um, it's not a terribly challenging read and, um, and, uh, and, and interesting, interesting. And there's a, surprise mystery element that Can I you find I'm enjoying. Can you repeat the title it and the author? It is called The Other Black Girl and the author's name is Zakaya Delilah Harris. Hmm. Who's up next? I can go next. I, I, this is Andy and I, a couple weeks ago, I guess, someone pulled up and came into the bookstore. He had about 22 boxes of books sitting in the back of his car and he was uh, headed from Taos, New Mexico on, on to Oklahoma. And uh, he wanted to see if he could offload a little bit. So we sat on the curb right outside of Back of Beyond. And he'd pull out a book, a box of books, and we'd go through them. <laughs> and I, I think he was surprised we didn't take as many as... I mean, we, we, we took a nice little handful. We did okay. Yeah, we did okay. So anyway, within that little collection was um, a book called Through the Flower, My Struggle as a Woman Artist by Judy Chicago Whoa. with... The introduction by Anais Nin. Wow, wow, wow. Now, you'd have to go, I think, a little far and wide to find this book. It is, um, you know, a a used copy that we have. Um, I think you could probably, you know, find a copy out there on the interwebs. Um, Or you can come on in. We, um, I'm currently reading this book. And it it basically, you know, details her um, personal tragedy, professional ostracism, to become an influential and controversial ar- artist, but also um, her voice as a woman. And um, I, I always like and, and usually fall into the rabbit hole of these uh, women artist narratives. Um, but it's great. She's a great writer, actually. And to kind of see what uh, Nin had to say later on in her life about Judy is kind of special. So. When was this book published? It was published in was it 70? Originally 75. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Heady yeah. times. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I'm going to give Brooke the last word, so I'm going to go next. And the book I chose is from the German art house Steidel. And we rarely even buy Steidel titles, but this is a, a pandemic-based book called The Moon is Behind Us. <laughs> and it features 30 photographs from the award-winning photographer Fazel Sheik and counter-essays from Terry Tempest Williams. And it's kind of a call and response. This, as I mentioned, was a pandemic project. It was not, again, intended in any form meant to be a book. And yet Terry writes in the forward, I think, that she these, these photographs spoke to her. And so she began to write a very short response to each of the 30 photographs that spanned his career. And because it, I think, wasn't intended to be a book, it is probably some of Terry's most personal writings. And it, too, spans the Trump administration. It spans the pandemic. And how she goes about this and how Brooke went about this 
are as night and day under the same roof as you could possibly have. Mm. And I found them both uh, very illuminating books, both Brooks and Terry's. So The Moon is Behind Us, uh, Fazel Sheik and Terry Tempest Williams. Wow, thanks. <clears throat> I've read three books cover to cover. I'm almost done with the third one. The first was... Um, what, is this in the last week, the yeah. last <laughs> month of <laughs> yeah, your life? No, the last month. <laughs> oh, okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like a, like a friend of mine says, I don't read anymore, I just ransack books, you know. <laughs> but I read totally, these. Totally. I mean, that 500 and something <laughs> page so book of um, Kim Stanley Robinson's, Robinson. um, The Ministry for the Future, oh, I read that right through. And then I read Bewilderment. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard, Powers. That Richard Powers book, which I couldn't put down. I couldn't wait till I had a chance to read it. And now I'm almost done. I'm a chapter away from finishing Rebecca Solnat's new book mm. on oh, okay. or, or or Roses, Roses yeah. which is a fascinating book because it does what nonfiction, the, the nonfiction I truly love does where she takes this one thing. She went to Orwell's house because she heard there were still some trees there that he had planted. And the, and the caretaker said, yeah, we had to cut the trees down, but those old roses are still growing. And it's about roses, and it's about Orwell, and it's about... Mm-hmm. The, it, unfortunately, Terry has received her last r- bunch of roses bought at City Market from me. Because <laughs> she goes to Columbia oh, and, wow. and, sees, sees, and what, sees how yeah. they're produced. Yeah. Wow. And it's like haunting. It's like... and it's. I mean, most of the roses don't have, they don't smell anymore. it's a disastrous industry. It's a disastrous Mm. industry. So I'm learning so much, and she's such a good writer and researcher. And this book, I feel like it was more of her just letting loose, as opposed to, her writing is so, is usually so meticulous and, this is more like, this is how she really feels about stuff, Mm. and, um, I can't wait to get back and read it. Are we almost done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just plugged, well, I guess two of them are indie bestsellers. Bewilderment driven or, uh, Orwell's Roses. Roses. Actually yeah. Is it? So and I guarantee you, she isn't going to hit the New York Times bestseller no, list. She's only going to hit the indie bound bestseller yeah. list. Yeah. Because yeah. she's a favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So good job. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. Well, Brooke, we'll see you next month as part of the new crew of Radio Book Club. Okay. On <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and if for anyone who's interested in our... In our um, yes. This Wednesday, I don't think we properly acknowledge that Andy is going to be my thought partner. That's yes. what they call him. Yeah. And we're going to talk about stuff. And um, I hope we have come to some sort of an agreement so that if he asks me something that's really uncomfortable... I get to ask him something back that's really uncomfortable because <laughs> we've had this relationship throughout the pandemic where we both met in the back of the bookstore and vented <laughs> about almost everything, don't you think? It, literally everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were no sacred cows in our conversation. There wasn't. There never was a sacred cow. No. Well, I'll be facilitating the conversation, yeah. so I'll... I'll uh, she can... <laughs> Control you, maybe. Yeah, I'll, I'll reel, reel it in if I have to. Help me out, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been the Radio Book Club, first Monday of every month, KZMU. Thanks to Sherry, Jesse, and Brooke Williams for joining us tonight. All right. Coming Thanks. Good night, all. Thank Good night. you.